Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The End of Sport, a podcast on capitalist sport, labor, and harm in sporting culture with your hosts, Johanna Mellis, Nathan Kalman-Lamb, and Derek Silva. If you're enjoying the show, please reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or check out our website at www.theendofsport.com, where you can find details on how to support the show via Patreon. With that said, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The End of Sport. I want to kind of skip forward just a couple or a few years. So this all kind of went down in 2008 in terms of like Bob, I can't even say his last name. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Getting let go or mutually deciding. Yeah. Parting ways. Um, And then... And that the the year before that, 2007, you moved to the Ottawa Fury, and then you went and played in various places in Europe. Correct? Yeah, I went to Norway for three seasons, and I, and that's and I also started playing for Ireland in that period of time too. Gotcha. And then in 2011, you came back to Vancouver. Correct. Right. So a, a coach that I had known locally um, got the job in Vancouver, and basically you know, did a sales pitch on how different everything was and, you know, mm-hmm. he in charge, all this sort of stuff. And then it was just like, you know, there was again, inappropriate behavior. But the thing that was different that time was that a lot of the players were, they had played in the WPS, the, the pro league in the U S at the time. And so again, they were older, they were American, you know, there, there was no, they had no power or control over any of them. Um, they were all people that, you know, took us, you know, or the type of people that would take a stand and, and step up. And so, um, again, obviously like the season played out till the end. And then there was, you know, a letter written to the, um, to the organization about this coach and what had gone on that summer. And then he was, he was talked like right at the end of the the summer, again, obviously, like, no one's really paying attention either as to, like, oh, the coach mm-hmm. is gone. Um, and that coach went back into women's soccer and, you know, nobody knew any different. And then and then it was that fall that I got a letter, uh, you know, or an email thanking me for my time with the team or whatever. And that's when I sort of was like, you know what, like, I got to write all of this out. Because at that point, Berard had been on the field with teenage girls for three years and, and I was furious that again, that like knowing what I knew of the situation. So I wrote a letter to the owner, Greg Kerfoot, Rachel Lewis, the CEO. And, um, I believe Dan Leonard doozy, who is Bob Leonard doozy's brother, who's also high up with the white caps. Um, and I basically outlined everything. And I, I said how upset I was. They knew what had gone on and they allowed him back on the field and the parents didn't know. And I bet if the parents knew what, what he had been, um, accused of that, you know, they wouldn't, you know, feel very comfortable with their 14 year olds being mm-hmm. on the field with him. Um, yeah. and I, and I, you know, I very detailed it. And I think, I mean, I think the smartest thing that I did was get as much as I could in writing just because, you know, it just even sort of, last year going back through everything, like I saved everything. So it was just, you know, and it was all in one email inbox. So I was able to just really quickly go through and, and, um, even just kind of like jog my memory with different correspondences and that type of thing. But anyway, so that was, you know, just full blown proof that like I had reported to them and they chose to do nothing. And then, um, and then, you know, I, I wrote a blog and I, I found like writing to be pretty therapeutic and, and, but again, right. Like it was one of those things where I never wanted to like, 
I never felt like I could outwardly call it out, but I still, it was almost like little cries for help over the years. And so in 2011, um, I wrote a blog and I alluded to, it was again at the end of that summer and I alluded to stuff that had happened before. It was one of those things. It was almost like a blog in code where like, if you'd only mm-hmm. been in the, the little, you know, messed up army we were in that you knew what I was talking about. And so one of the girls reached out to me from the U20 team who had quit right before she had been a player on the 2006 world cup team U20 um, and as an underage player. And then, you know, on normal soccer cycles, then you'd be one of the star major players for 2008. And like, she ended up quitting a couple of months before the world cup because she saw the grooming behaviors going on full blown. And just, again, she didn't have the words to describe grooming or, you know, like, but, but she knew that something was very off and it was a very sexualized environment and she just couldn't cope anymore. So she ended up leaving the team. And so she wrote me out of nowhere, basically just venting about like her experience. And, and, um, anyway, so that was kind of the first time that I kind of somebody that was, you know, victimized within that environment, not obviously, like I said, and and I think an interesting point that I've kind of come to terms with as well is that, you know, always, you know, people, when you say victim, like, obviously I didn't experience the, you know, sexual harassment or abuse from him. My friend that reached out to me didn't, but like, we've had major, you know, it's emotional abuse, right. That we've experienced. Mm -hmm. And like, that's just as traumatizing. And, you know, my friend, had fit, you know, she, she broke her back with him as a coach and she just didn't feel like he was always pressuring her to play. And she never felt like she could say no. And and so she's dealing with like physical ramifications to this day. So I always just find it very ironic to be like, we weren't victims, but like we're both still in intense therapy and she wakes up every day with a, like a back that's messed up because of her experience. So, I mean, I just think it's also really important to start changing the lingo around it as well, because I think I minimized my experience for a long time because I felt like, well, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a sexual victim, but it's like, no, like I was massively victimized by this situation, you know? And, um, but anyways, yeah. So that was the first time that someone had reached out to me about it. And then we reconnected in 2015. And at that point, you know, she said to me, I'm really uncomfortable with him still coaching. And I, you know, I'm older now. And I just, I just, it really bothers me that he's on the field with teenagers, teenage girls. And so I said to her at that point, like, listen, like I've always been the one that's spoken up. I'm just exhausted. Like, I feel like I'm an emotional mess still from my whole soccer experience. Like I don't have it in me to like lead the charge, but I'll support you in whatever way I can. So that was then, um, you know, that was kind of when we started to sort of informally meet. And then I said, you know, like, let's bring in like the national team player. Um, And so, yeah, so basically like the three of us started to meet. And then um, I had a really weird situation where basically um, I got, I had met with the two players that was sort of informally, you know, it was kind of our little group that we're trying to figure out how to deal with the situation. And then I had gone for a coffee with a girl that's on the national team and we were just chatting. And and then I said to her, you know, I was like, she, she mentioned Chile and I was like, Oh, it's a place I've always wanted to go. Have you ever been there? And she's like, well, actually, yeah, the 2008 under 20 world cup was in Chile. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like you were on that team. And then anyways, I'm like, that's so weird. I just had this meeting with these other, um, you know, these other two players about that whole situation. And then she's like, yeah, it's so awful what he did to so-and-so. And I'm like, I didn't know that story. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, oh yeah. And told me the whole story. And I was just like, oh my goodness. And so then I went back to the other players and said, listen, like they're, they're you know, this is a concrete story. I, I didn't know about this. Did you guys? And they said, no, like, I know she just kind of disappeared off the team. So then 
basically, uh, yeah. So one of the girls then reached out to that player just to say like, can we meet up and talk? And so it was the crazy, there's so many weird things that happened like in the story, but this is one of the weirdest things. So literally I went that night to go, or it was a couple of days later to my friend's daughter was playing a game and said, you know, will you come watch her play? She's a really good, you know, grade 10 player. So I said, sure, but I don't want to, I hate, you know, and that was something for me. Like I really struggled. Like I hated Vancouver after all of this had happened. It was really painful for me to go home. And I just didn't want to be around anybody in soccer because again, like it was almost like everybody was colluding to like allow him to stay on the field. And I just, uh, it was just, was like a lot of bad memories. And so, um, so I said to my friend, like, I'll come, but I want to go on the other side of the field. So I don't have to see anybody or whatever. So she's like, yeah, no problem. So I get to the field and I'm watching this game and I like, just I'm watching the other team and I'm watching the coach and then I'd like the mannerisms and the way he's talking and walking. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's Bob Berta. Like, and then I said to my friend's um, like husband, I was like, is, is like, what team are they playing? And he's like, you know, coastal FC, which was like the club I knew he was at. And then I, I was just sh- like, I was in shock. I'm like, Oh my God. Like I said to my friend, cause she obviously knew the whole story. And I'm like, like, that's the guy, <laughs> like, you know? Yeah. And so literally as I am like standing there in shock, my phone rings and it's my friend and she's like, you're not going to believe this. And I'm like, no, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> and like, so, and then I was like, you go first. And she's like, I was walking my dog in this random trail and I ran into that player that I'd sent the message to the one that had had this thing happen. And, um, and anyway, so they ended up then connecting. So she had reached out to the player that was a victim that I had gotten word of in that coffee that I'd had with my, with the other the player. So we were trying to get a hold of, I hope I'm not really confusing people, but we've been trying to get a, a hold of this player that we had found out was a victim in 2008. And basically that the day that I was watching Bob Berard, a coach on the field, she called me to say that she encountered this player randomly in a trail, like that she never mm-hmm. went on. And so then that basically, then that player kind of came into our, the, our sort of meetings and then, and then, yeah, for the next literally three years, we went to the police, we went to the media, we went to, um, the BC soccer, the provincial sporting body that he was coaching under. And we reported and reported and reported and reported and nothing got done. (laughs) And that led up to then 2019 when I wrote the blog. Wow. Yeah. Thanks so much for, for laying that out there. Um, and now that, I mean, you've really laid us at the feet of sort of the next question, which is, you know, that this 2019 blog post, and I'm going to quote you for a little bit here. Um, so we can talk about the role of the media, which you just alluded to. Um, and you said, quote, myself and or others have told some and or, and or all parts of the story many times to representatives of the white caps, Canada, Canada soccer and BC soccer to many members of the media over the years, both local and national print to TV. It has been utterly disheartening over and over again to see administrators, journalists, and others, despite being in a position to give the story a voice or do something to help, just haven't given a damn enough to do anything. Over and over, the story has died until someone from behind the scenes has had the courage to interrupt their own lives to get it going again, end quote. Um, now, can you sort of explain the role of the media since that's, re- I mean, definitely part of this quote um, leading up to when you shared this story in February 2019? Yeah, and actually the timing, uh, you know, there's been sort of, especially now since the arrest, like, I, I think it's been funny because, like, I mean, you think that there would be, I don't know, like, it wasn't like we got any kind of a heads up that the arrest was happening. So it's been interesting sort of to like observe how it's been for me this last week. But like, 
to be honest, I wasn't expecting to feel like this, but I feel really angry, you know, and, and I find it very patronizing when people that could have done something are calling us brave and courageous. And you know what I mean? Because it's just like, there's, you know, there's no need, like I should not have had to thrown myself off the proverbial cliff to get this story out there to get to the point that people came forward and there's like, uh, charges. Do you know what I mean? Like, and, and, and I, and so anyway, so I, I mean, and I've been reviewing through a lot of the, the different communications and stuff. And and there was somebody who's pretty prominent in media in Vancouver that knew the entire story in 2011. And we, you know, I was going through and I have the whole text chain of like, you know, basically like explaining the whole story and conversations and his ideas of how he could deal with it. And, and I, you know, and I told him like, I'm, I'm up, I'm angry, you know, like, why didn't you do anything? And he, you know, and he said like, obviously he feels horrible now, but he was saying how, and I mean, I asked flat out, like, you know, because something that, that a couple of different media said to me last year was that, you know, the white caps were calling and, and, you know, whether, whatever people like their media guy or people in their front office were like, you know, giving blistering phone calls, bitching about like the coverage of the story in the paper last year. And, and to me, I'm like, like, where do these, you know, where do the white caps even get off thinking that they have a voice that they can give yeah. a blistering phone call to anybody? But that's, you know, again, it, it's, I read it somewhere last year and it's, you know, Vancouver is like a big city, but it's a village. Like it really is. And, um, and there's so many like interpersonal relationships and whatever, but this, I mean, we went to the, the, you know, yeah. Like I told the story so many times, but the thing that, that everybody kept going back to was that they could be held liable if, you know, if, if he was to sue or whatever, and nobody was willing to come forward. So like that was, you know, that, that's kind of been the excuse that's been given over and over again with the media, like, unless somebody's willing to go come forward. And like, I had a conversation with a journalist, I think it was maybe like two years ago, or maybe like 2018, I think, but, um, you know, and, and like, he said to me, he's like, well, you know, like, well, I, if if I'm going to do this story, like, you're going to have to put your name on it. And I, and I just flat out said to him, I was like, you know, if I'm putting my name on the story, like I'm writing the story myself, you know, like, and, and that's, I mean, I just said it kind of at the time it just came out of my mouth and it sort of ended up being prophetic in a way, because that's just, you know, that's what it came down to. And, and, um, yeah, so, so that was kind of, you know, so, so, and I just got, you know, it's draining like every time, like I had to tell the entire story and, and it's, you know, it's upsetting. It's an upsetting story. And, and, just, yeah, like to feel so silenced and helpless. And like, you know, and I think the biggest thing that I've realized, like, is that, you know, obviously what I went through with him back in 2007, 2008, like that was traumatic, but honestly, like the trauma has been the last 11 years. Like, like Mm -hmm. that, that's the trauma, like trying to tell, like we counted it up and it's literally like, we try to report it 30 different times to 30 different like people and organizations and, and, and that that's damaging, you know, and, and, and I like, that's, it was, there was a radio show that I did the week that I wrote the blog last year. And, and, um, yeah. And I, I, I started crying talking about like, cause the, the person asked me like, what's going to be, you know, what's going to be different this time. And it was obviously like right after I'd written the blog and I, and I just started to talk about how, like, I tried to tell the story like over and over and over again, and no one was listening. And like, just how validating, like even just that there was like a response and like the blog went viral and everybody was like, this is such a horrible, horrific, how is this even possible? And and like I said, when you've told the story so often and there's no reaction, like you just start to question, like, is this even, you know, am I making this up? You know, so even just to sit in like, 
in people being horrified about the story when I wrote it. It just was like therapeutic in and of itself that like this actually was so awful and so wrong and and like, and wasn't normal. And, you know, and, and honestly, even therapeutic to see everybody that should have stepped up and done something, you know, just everybody running for cover basically like, Mm. um, yeah. And so, so kind of how the, like, that's sort of how, you know, like, again, like I said, it, you know, you keep on telling the story and no one's doing anything. And I think for me, like the Larry Nassar thing was really like, um, you know, I, I was actually going to Thailand at the time. And I was like, um, I was, I had an overnight in Malaysia and, and I threw on my, you know, it, the, it started to break in the news before I left the sentencing hearing and the victims talking. And I just thought like, Oh, before I go to bed, I'm going to watch a couple of the, the victim impact statements. And I ended up staying up the whole night, like watching like hours and hours and just like sitting in this hotel room, like bawling by myself. And like, mm-hmm. it was just like, you're just hearing like the stories and the environment and the silencing and the people being able to do something and not doing something and like how damaging that is. And like, I was just like, like, I just, honestly, I'm like, it was a little, you know, kind of a little lighthouse in the darkness of like, you're not crazy. Maybe there'll be a day that like, there'll be like, this will be heard, like keep going, keep fighting, whatever. And so, um, so that was kind of, again, something that gave me a little bit of courage. And then, and then when I, started to sort of see when I came, yeah, like beginning of January, 2019, um, I saw a story in like the CBC. Um, yeah, Derek, obviously, I don't know, Johanna, if you know, the CBC is kind of like our national newspaper or whatever. They, they did a big story about abuse in sport. And that was the first time that I saw it. And I was like, I was like, okay, this is, you know, like this is actually even a conversation and I have friends on other national teams and I know that this is a problem. And, and, you know, so it was like the first time I saw people speaking about it. And then, um, yeah. And then I just was, I, I was on the national, which is kind of like a news program. And I tweeted after they'd put the article out and said, you know, finally there, people are talking about it. Like this is an issue. And then they reached the national reached out to me. It's like the TV show connected with CBC. And they were like, do you want to ask the national sport organizations a question about it? And I was like, sure. So I went on and I asked, you know, do you think that NSOs can properly um, investigate themselves if something happens? And the answers, and these are like the leading people in Canada for like abuse in sport. And like the answers were so ridiculous. I was just so fired up. And then I went down, there was a Whole Foods by my house and I was just like, you know, I'd written the blog a few times over the years and I have friends that are lawyers and I'd run it past them and they were basically like, don't do it. And, and I, you know, I think also too, like just emotionally, like I, like I knew there'd be like a big like whiplash back and I just, I didn't know, I didn't think I was strong enough to take it. And I just, I think just my life, like I felt so stuck in my life and, and I was just in such a bad headspace and, and like literally was at rock bottom. And I kind of, you know, it was one of those things where like, you know, that moment when you're like, wow, like rock bottom's actually like a really empowering place to operate from because I have nothing Mm -hmm. to lose. And I'm, I don't even like, I just would rather live in a world and like, you know, I I just want to live in a world that I want to live in. And if something happens by me speaking the truth, like that's a better solution than living in this like dark hole that I feel like my life has been the last bunch of years, you know? And so I went down to the whole foods and I'm like, this is the last time I'm writing this blog. And I literally, it was one of those things where I'm like, you know, as a person and as a woman, like you're thinking of all the way that all the ways they can discredit you. And I was like, okay, like, don't be emotional, be as factual as possible, put in every single bit of evidence you have. So like, if they're going to discredit you, like it's almost a challenge to them to like produce evidence to the contrary. And I, yeah, I just, I wrote it all out. 
literally took me six hours. I like closed it. And then I was like leaving Whole Foods and I was like, oh, I want a couple of cookies. And so I like went back into Whole Foods to get a couple of cookies for my walk home. And I was standing in a lineup. It was like 10 checkout lines. And this girl was behind me and was kind of looking at me. And then it finally, she's like, I'm sorry if this is weird. Are you Kira McCormack? And I was like, I am like, who are you? And she's like, oh, my name's blah, blah, blah. Um, I was on like the youth national teams, a few, like 10 years, I'm 10 years younger. I was on the youth national teams. And I, anyways, we had a whole bunch of mutual friends. I knew who she was. And so we just started, you know, chatting in the line and stuff. And anyways, and so finally I was just like, listen, like, it's really weird running into you. Like I just spent all day writing this blog. Did you ever have Bob Berarda as your coach? And she got teary and she's like, Kira, I've been in therapy the last couple of years because of that guy. And I was just like, what? And she's like, and and we talked about it afterwards. Like she's a good friend of mine now. And like, basically she never, like she walked past the Whole Foods every day, pretty much never walked in, felt compelled to walk in that night, even though she didn't need anything, bought a bar of soap she didn't need just to buy something. And then just ended up in line behind me. And like, we had that interaction. And that to me was like, the impetus where it's like jump off the cliff and you're, you're supposed to die. You're supposed to die, but like don't mess with fate because like, what are the chances that that interaction would happen like minutes after you finish writing this blog? And yeah. So. Yeah. Like one of the, the things that I think you're, you're highlight or you've highlighted here in terms of the Canadian media um, system or, or the Canadian media in general, I think is a, is an often overlooked thing in Canada. Mm-hmm. Like, we tend to look down at the United States and be like, yeah, ESPN, they're complicit in harm and all this harm that happens. But like in Canada, it's very similar. Like oh. I, we are no, fa- we are no fans of TSN or CBC here in terms of like going after and truly uh, uncovering some of these, these harms. And it sounds like you were essentially gaslit totally. by the Canadian media. Totally. Yeah. And, and to be honest, like, Um, I mean, I, I think like a few things are kind of interesting narratives to touch on. Like the first is how regionalized news seems to be in Canada. So when I posted, when I posted the blog, one of my best friends growing up was on the national team for skiing. And I don't know if you're familiar with the ski case, but there was, um, in the nineties, uh, their coach was a sexual predator that was, um, having sex with like a lot of the girls that were underage on this national ski team. And they got told, they reported to Alpine Canada who told them, don't tell anybody we're going to lose sponsors. And then put the freaking coach after they reported back on the same plane as the girls flying home from Europe after this had happened. Oh so God. yeah. So they ended up coming forward a few years ago and just like, I, I honestly, so my friend, Amy skied for Canada. So when my blog came out immediately, she tagged the skiers that were a part of that case. And Jen Samard, who was the reporter or the whistleblower or whatever in that situation who had been abused by her coach. Um, she reached out to me that, that day that I wrote the blog and honest to God, I would not have, I've never met Jen in my life, (laughs) but she was my best friend and navigated me through everything for the first month. Like I, I would not have, I would not have been able to, uh, like, I am forever grateful for her. And, and, um, yeah, like, and, but I, I only knew of the ski case because when Amy was on the ski team in the nineties, like I remember her telling me that the coach was a creep and sleeping with a bunch of players. And then I ended up, you know, hearing, but Jen hadn't heard of my, like our case. Cause she's out in Quebec. And so, um, mm. we hadn't heard of, you know, our case and, and, you know, our case hadn't gotten out to there. And so, so that's one thing. And then, 
the other thing too, like I think, you know, and this is conversations that I've had with Vancouver media since this broke. Like, I think the other thing is that, you know, they, again, what they say is that the, the journalists are so spread, like they're spread so thin that like, they don't have the resources to be able to sort of be investigative journalists, like the Indie star or the OC register or the different groups down in the States that have done an amazing job breaking abuse in sports yeah. stories. So that's something else. And, and I, okay. Like I can, I can understand that. And, and I think, but I do think that there's, you know, something that again, has gone on in the last you know year whatever with the with the blog like tsn did not report the walkout so there was like not to jump around and confuse the story but there was like you know massive walkouts in three mls games like thousands of people leaving the stadium and tsn didn't report them um i went on a radio show uh in december 2019 with matt securis who is a radio of like a really prompt like the most prominent radio show probably in vancouver and i got grilled like i it was i honestly like i just went on this radio program and i was midway through the program being like am i like a defendant getting cross-examined in a trial right now because you know like I was not expecting this to happen and then you know people went off on Twitter afterwards so I'm like okay I'm not losing my mind but the Whitecaps owner had been on before and it was like a bro chat you know like and Uh. and people were just saying like that's that's disgusting and and to this day I I don't know somehow it got brought up again (laughs) like my mention is just all these awesome guys in Vancouver like calling out still like Matt Securis for how he like spoke to me but that's but that to me is a massive red flag because because, you know, like, like, why, you, why are you not reporting like thousands of fans leaving the stadium? Or why are you being a bully to somebody that was a victim that's like, you know, already struggling enough being a whistleblower? And now you're making them feel, you know, or you're just being so blatantly disrespectful. And, um, you know, so so yeah, so so I mean, I, I think that the media definitely has something to answer for. And, you know, and, and that's the thing too, where like, you know, last year, it, I mean, the blog was talked about, it was like the New York Times, the Guardian did four articles on it. Um, and and mm-hmm. it was like in Le Mans, the French newspaper. And that I had a French MP like from Quebec reach out to me. And the only reason why she'd heard about this story was because she'd read it in Le Mans, the French newspaper, you know? like oh, Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, again, like I'm not an expert in any of this stuff, but I'm also like a logical person. And it's just like, yeah, like it's pretty red flaggy to me, but I mean, and again, even now, like, I mean, I, there's still stories. I mean, and again, I, I feel like people, I I hope people aren't getting too confused, but like something that I've uncovered just this weekend, because I feel like I'm Aaron Brockovich, like behind the scenes, (laughs) like, like, like Aaron Brockovich and also like a 1-800 hotline for like abuse and harassment stories in Canadian (sighs) soccer. I have people reaching out to me all the time with like telling me these awful stories, but like, um, you know, between those two things, I've come to find out that so the white caps, you know, after all this stuff went on last year, they hired, you know, and again, like I said, it, it's interesting to sit back and just watch like the playbook, right? And the playbook is like, okay, you know, our organization, you know, did wrong, we finally have to do something about it. So we're going to hire an investigative team to come in and, and to do this, you know, to, to get to the bottom of this, right? But it's on our dime. And so we're going to control the narrative, right? And so yeah. It, it was this group, sport law and strategy. Um, again, uh, it was a law group out of the east, out of Eastern Canada. And so I come to find out this weekend that the Canadian whistleblower hotline is run by sport law and strategy group, who also happened to be the legal counsel for Ontario soccer, the biggest PSO under Canada soccer. Mm-hmm. So 
that's the most massive conflict of interest when literally yeah. a whistleblower hotline for the group that you're the legal counsel for, you know? So yeah. Yeah. anyways, like I said, like, and, and to me, it's like, doesn't anybody care about that story? Like this is, you are literally, I, I don't know. But, but like I said, I think uh, like, for whatever reason, this stuff's not getting reported on. And I mean, like I've already thrown myself off of a cliff. So I feel like if something bad's going to happen to me, like it doesn't matter if I just tweet out a few more nuggets of knowledge or whatever. <laughs> like I, you know, it's just, this stuff just blows my mind. And and like I said, like I just, you just see how people get silenced and you see the machinery that these groups, whether, you know, working in conjunction with like the media and, you know, even the government, I'm sure to some degree, because, you know, FIFA is hosting the 20 or 2026 world cup in Canada, which I'm sure, you know, has governmental ties. And so you can just see the whole machinery and like why it's very hard, you know, even now with these whistleblower hotlines where it's like, you know, it's just connected back into the machine and all it does is it just exists to like isolate and, um, yeah, just like really negatively affect victims. And it, like I said, it's not even what happens to you. That's the trauma. It's like this silencing by the machinery after the fact. Right. So yeah. it's been very eye opening to be in the midst of all of it. Yeah. And like, you're, you're really like supporting my claims that I've kind of mentioned to a lot of people that like, many programs on TSN are actually closer to Barstool than they are to the OC register and Scott Reed and reporting like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, if your story kind of highlights that, um, mm -hmm. I, I think and highlights the machinery that goes into like not talking about things and how much power or how, how much, um, actual real decisions are, are made to not talk about certain things. And I, I think that's a particularly um, horrifying thing in, in your case. But I wanted to get back to, um, to this, to the walkout that you briefly mentioned, because I, it, it's kind of surprising to be completely honest. Mm -hmm. The fact that, that like after this, so after the you you wrote your blog blog post, um, a horrific Canadian soccer story, which again we linked in the show notes. Um, in February nineteenth, soon after that, uh, twelve former Team Canada players published statements about how Berarda, um, had sent sexual text messages to players, made sexual comments to them, had had touched them inappropriately, and used his position to make sexual advances on on numerous occasions, which is absolutely horrifying mm -hmm. but what is like surprising to me in in this context is after those statements were released white white caps fans kind of took it on themselves to to protest at least a little bit they started to walk out at the 35 minute mark um in home games and, and that's a pretty big stand when you know like uh, three quarters of the way in, in into the first half fans are getting up and walking um out so i i'd like to to ask you for your take on that. Like, how did that come to be? What did that support mean to you? What does it mean to victims in general? What kind of impact did it have? Oh, like, um, I was joking. I, I did two TV interviews last week of once Beretta got arrested and I started crying and <laughs> talking about the fans walking out of the games. And so I really hope I keep it together talking to you guys. But um, yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, like, like I said, so I wrote the blog and I, I mean, I was, I was by myself, obviously publicly for like the first five weeks, Jen Samard, the skier was like, a, a, like 
I, my absolute lifesaver. Um, and then the, the, um, under 20 players came forward and actually a weird twist to that was that one of my, so just again, as sort of a, a quick little side note to it, we, we started to reach out, like it was full Aaron Brockovich style behind the scenes, like trying to piece together who was on what rosters to reach out, to find out if anything had happened to them. So I had reached out to a, my roommate actually in Ottawa. It was, I'd gone to Ottawa for two summers. So it was the second summer that I was in Ottawa. I had a roommate that had just graduated high school and, and again, talking about sort of the, you know, the players and how everyone kind of beats to the drum. Like she was awesome. Like she just sort of, she just, beat her own drum, which stood out in that environment. But anyways, basically she went to a national team, like one of the under 20 camps and then came back early and said that she just walked out. Like she just, it wasn't for her was what she said at the time. And then when I reached out to her, I said, you know, we're trying to get a hold of everybody. Um, and then she said, she wrote me back. I like Instagram messaged her and she's just like, here, I've been crying all morning, like call me. And so she told me that like, she was the one that he had made the advance in, um, at the camp. Like she had kind of said, why am I not starting? Um, and he basically had put her in a, in a hotel room and, and like closed the door and basically said like, well, what are you going to do about it? Kind of thing. And she was just like, see you later. Like I'm out of here. Um, so like those sorts of things, I mean, it was just, it was, it was a lot of stuff that was really intense behind the scenes. And like I said, stuff that I didn't know about. So the, the players stepped forward and then, um, and then the, the fan group reached out to us. And so first, uh, this group Curva Collective, there were like a smaller fan group. They put out a letter right after the under 24 players came forward, basically co- like condemning the way that the white, ca- because the white caps are putting out these really generic statements. So they kind of condemned it. And then like a week after that, one of the head people for the Southsiders, which is like the big, you know, the crazy beer drinking guys at the game and girls, mm. um, you know, they reached out to us saying, you know, could we meet up with you guys? So myself and and uh, one of the players went down to meet with them and they basically said, listen, like, this is what our idea is. What do you guys think about us walking out of the games? And like, honestly, I was so touched. I, I Well, first of all, I was like, that's that's brilliant. And second of all, I mean, it wasn't on any kind of a radar at all. So anyway, so basically, um, yeah, they, they walked out of the games and, and, you know, even watching it the first time that it happened, like I was crying, like, you know, the other players were messaging me and they were super emotional and yeah, like it, it was crazy (laughs) just Mm -hmm. because you never, people don't step up like that. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like we'd been silenced for so long and like, yeah, like I said, like I hated Vancouver. Like I, I, I mean, I hated living there. It was just so painful for me. And like, you know, just, and part of it was, and just like all these cowards, like all around the city, whether it's like coaches that know about what's gone on media people that know, and like, no one's done anything. And, and, you know, it just was really painful. But then to actually see these like people that literally, I don't know them, they don't know us, but they see what's going on and they see it's not right. And they're organizing this on their own accord. And they're like, pissing off the white caps owners and, and taking that on as well. And so basically then the second walkout that, and, and they were like, again, so respectful asking us like how, you know, if this was, if this was helpful and really getting our input and this is all for us. And they asked us like, what do you, what do you want to get out of it? And, you know, we were just like, we just want to sit down with the owners and like have a conversation. Like we don't want to, we, we don't want to have anything to do with the front office. Like we want to talk to the owners, but they wouldn't meet with us. And so then the second walkout happened. And then basically the, the owner, Jeff Mallett flew up from San Francisco and there was like this meeting and 
Um, like, like I said, like last year, it was like being in like a live Netflix, like series, something wild. And so, you know, I'll never forget like that they were in the meeting with the owners. And I think, you know, the owners just, again, this arrogance of like, we've flown like, you know, Jeff Mallett's flown from San Francisco to like meet with these guys. And, um, anyways, and, and basically, you know, I think they thought by just them showing up at this meeting that they, that that was it with the walkouts, but they were like, no, like you have to meet with the players. And they were like, well, no, we're not willing to. And then they're like, well, we're walking out again. And then they, and then they called me. So then they asked to get, like, leave the meeting. <laughs> and, like They were like, you know, you know, we're in a, we're in a meeting with like the owners. Um, they're not going to meet with you. Like, you know, we're doing whatever you want. Do you want us to walk out? So like, we're totally behind you and, and we're willing to walk out again. If like, they're not meeting what, what you guys are asking. And I was like, yep. And so it was just this bizarre thing of like my, like, like I'm on the other end of the phone deciding if like thousands of people are going to walk out. <laughs> like it was, just, it was bizarre. And so, but so touching that, like, again, that they were doing this and then, you know, and then at that point it was like, they couldn't, you know, you, you couldn't ignore this anymore. And and so then it just started to like, then all the fan like, it, then, and then the final walkout, like the Timbers fans, like all of them walked out as well. So like the entire Peters oh. fans like left their entire section and, you know, and I had friends at the games that were like sending me, you know, like um, video of like all the fans in the concourse that had walked out and like, it was just, yeah, like it was, it was such a lesson in terms of even for me in my own life, like, like really looking at ways that I can use my voice to empower people and just seeing how you know, it's like, we all have the power to create change and, and do things, but it, but it's also too, like change is never going to happen. Nothing would have happened if it was just us, like the change. And, and even the fact that this is still being talked about. And even the fact that like he was arrested and people came forward, like it was all off of the publicity and it was all off of the fans, you know, the men and the women in, in those groups that decided to, to walk out and like, literally like they became friends last year. Like I was, I, I go for beers, with, you know, it's like, like these are the kind of people you want to be friends with in terms of like having that kind of like character and, and caring just about people that it was just, it was incredible. Honestly, it like, if I die tomorrow, it's one of the best like things in my life that's ever happened. And honestly, like, it sounds really cheesy to say, but it like, you know, renewed my faith in humanity. And like, I also feel like gave me Vancouver back where I'm like, this is a place with good people. And, and um, yeah, so, and, and, you know, and I just think, you know, talking about just touching on sort of the, the, the power tripping of everything, like, you know, it's just, even at the highest like levels, you know, with these people that have all this power, like, like, because now of the fans and the fact that this is sort of, you know, even being in the game this long enough or the fight long enough, you know, like you realize like they don't even do a good job of like covering up their power, you know, like mm -hmm. their appropriate use of power. Because like I said, like, it's literally like to be in the fight at this point and just doing the tiniest amount of digging, you're like, they're not even doing a good job of covering up the corruption. And it's really not that hard to find and like show, you know, but it's just, you can just tell that it like, things never get to this point that people at this level are even getting called out still, you know what I mean? And, and you just, yeah. yeah. So anyways, it, it was, it was, it was really remarkable. And honestly, like with the whole story, like where I like to put the focus because yeah, like they're the heroes of the story as far as I'm concerned, because, you know, I could, I could do what I did, but it would not have gotten amplified in the manner that it did unless they did, you know, unless they walked out of the game. So, yeah. Yeah. And I guess, no, and I, you know, I really like how you lay it out for us. And I'm just sort of wondering, you know, we kind of, 
how do I say, we sometimes critique fans for not doing too, not doing enough. And so sort of following along with what the sports media says, we've critiqued that point a fair bit. And so I guess I'm just sort of wondering, you know, how can we think of the influence of fan behavior more broadly in terms of like, it's clear that what the fans did was that their actions were very clear in showing their support of you all as athletes, not even the athletes on their team, but the athletes on the women team that no longer exists. And then, you know, showing that support while showing their total disgust and disapproval with what like the team leadership is doing. And and that's a very, that's a very nuanced, you know, perspective. And, and, And the fact that they reach out to you, right? Like they really went above and beyond what we pretty much ever see fans doing. And Mm -hmm. so sort of how could we maybe, I guess, how can we sort of extrapolate and think about how fans and other sports might be able to do this or sort of how fans can sort of show their support for athletes when these stories of victimization and abuse come up? Um, That's a really good question. Um, I mean, I, I think, I think people have to realize, like, I think, I think fans have to realize the power that they have, you know what I mean? And I think a lot of the times you know, it's interesting because I think athletes don't realize the collective power that they have. Fans don't realize the collective power that they have. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think something that the narrative that organizations and, you know, whether it's like the Olympic Committee or, um, you know, colleges or whatever, like the the thing that gets sort of embedded into athletes anyways is like, you know, don't mix politics and sports or whatever. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's just like, and and that's kind of a way that they, you know, kind of try to break up the, like the collective standing up for things that sort of, you know, ruin the corporate goals per se. Um, you know, so I, I mean, I think the thing is, honestly, is just, I don't know. I, I don't know what it was about our situation. Like, like I said, like, I, I don't know. I think it was just so egregious and people could see just how awful the situation was and just how awful the team response was. And I don't know if that was sort of what like galvanized people to, to jump on board with it. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I just think that I think with anybody, like if you, if you see things going on that aren't right, like I think for all of us just to be, you know, if, if, if athletes are getting exploited, I don't know. I, I mean, I think part of it also too, is to like, I think sometimes people look at sports as entertainment and I think it's really important to realize that like sports have people and people have, you know, those people matter and like their experience matters and they don't have a voice. And so, but you as a fan, like you decide if you're going to go to the game, you're the person that decides if you're going to watch it. And um, yeah. And I think it's, I mean, what they did was basically, you know, a few of them took a stand and and everybody sort of like jumped on board and followed. And so I think like it just, it showed the power of the fan, but I guess I think part of the problem of like, I mean, society in general, like why does this stuff perpetuate? It's because we're all so apathetic. Do you know what I mean? And I think Mm -hmm. like, if there's one thing that I think 2020, at least for me personally, has been like a powerful thing is that like, you know, if, if you're apathetic, like you get what you like act like, do you know what I mean? Like you get this Mm -hmm. super messed up world. And I think it's like on all of us to look around us and to see, you know, just everything we're consuming and doing and a part of and whatever. And like, is that helping society and, and, and not being so apathetic because abuse happens and, you know, abuse is perpetuated and people are silenced when people around them are apathetic. And I think a lot of times, I think a lot of people are just so busy in their own lives that they're just not necessarily thinking out of sort of survival within their own realm. And, I don't know that that's the one thing I've gotten out of 2020. And that's the one thing I got out of what happened last year is that like, 
you know, we all can create change and we all have an opportunity all the time and we can talk to people around us. And, you know, it's again, like the whole thing that happened last year was like a few fans getting together with this idea and like pitching it to the masses and then boom, like, you you know, and, and honest to God, like, I mean, again, it's, they, they made it safe for the victims to come forward. And I really think that eventually like just the amount of publicity and everything that's been around our case, like, you know, even if people want to try to cover up abuse and stuff in the future, like I, I really think that people are going to think twice and, and that all boils down to a few fans deciding to walk out of soccer games. Do you know what I mean? So, um, yeah. Yeah. So I have sort of a, a very pointed question to ask that just came to mind. And I'm just sort of thinking about, you know, what, what did the men's team do? Like, what was their response to all of this when it was going on? Like, not, sorry, not when it was going on, but like in, in 2019, when all this came out, how did the men's, the Vancouver Whitecaps men's team do? That's actually a really interesting question again, that no one's actually asked me or, um, they, they, um, yeah, I mean, I actually know someone that is involved with the men's team. Um, and, and it was just funny because I was joking with him that like, you know, we had to like act like we didn't know each other in public because I, I would, you know, the fact that I, you know, whatever, that I was the one sort of that I guess was galvanizing all this um, situation. And, and he was obviously involved um, with the men's team and, and all that. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I like, you know, he's a good person. And, and you know, he said like, at least, you know, within the group of people that he interacts with, um, that like they were disgusted, like just, they were, they were disgusted by like what happened. And, um, yeah, I mean, none of the men's players, I don't think anybody publicly supported us, um, from what I remember. Um, but like, again, the, the person that I know, uh, within the men's team, um, reached out to me and was definitely behind the scenes for me, like showing major support in terms of, you know, just saying like from a human level, like what happened was so not right and, and was sympathetic, but yeah, there wasn't, there was kind of a disconnect in that sense. And the, but like, you know, and honestly, again, like I don't fault anybody. Like I, you know, I don't know. At the end of the day, it's, I think that that's, I used to be very black and white about things, but now I'm sort of more at a point where I'm like, you know, not everyone's going to choose to stand up to power, you know, and, and at the end of the day, honestly, it's not like we needed the men's players to move this forward and mm-hmm. it probably would have just caused them to, you know, again, men's players in the MLS aren't making that much money and it's not like they have that much power. So I wasn't that offended that, you know, men's players weren't taking a big stand on this. Like, I think if anything, they were just trying to, you know, it was just a huge sideshow to a lot of other sideshows that have gone on with the organization and I think they they just sort of like put their heads down and played which again is kind of maybe like the narrative of what's wrong about all of it but um but yeah they they there was nothing that was at least from the men's players um from like a support standpoint but like I said like it wasn't yeah I mean I, I've been in those shoes so I don't judge yeah yeah so so we, we're like totally with you in terms of like there there is some sort of like percolating responsibility and like power behind fans right like it like as individuals we might not have power but like collectively we have more power and we can like do things as fans but i also think it's important to highlight and and you've done this exceptionally well um throughout this podcast highlight the structural kind of antecedents and the the structural causes and organization that allow 
these things to exist and beyond that like allow people like Barada to not sort of be held to account for a variety of reasons so we only have a couple questions left but one of the questions that i had was we're now in late 2020 as of recording um Barada has been arrested um sort of what is next and, and i don't mean what is next for like for athletes or for fans but like what is next in terms of what extent or or to what to what extent have you seen changes structurally in the Canadian Soccer Association with the white caps in the media have you seen any changes and and if not like what changes would you like to see um that's a really good question you guys you guys ask really good questions um yeah so i mean i i think like the biggest thing that I've seen. And, and I, I think so again, and it's sort of a good way to tie in how things kind of panned out last year. So we ended up through like a very um, serendipitous meeting with one of the players with the owner. Um, we ended up having a meeting with the owners. Right. So we, we just, again, it was, it's another, yeah, it's, it's another crazy twist to the story in terms of how it came about, but I, I won't go into all of that, but anyways, we ended up having a meeting with the owners and in that meeting, um, you know, they said, we're going to do an investigation. And, and I said to Kerfoot, you know, like, obviously you guys are paying for it. And, you know, his sort of arrogant response was like, well, who else do you expect is going to pay for it? And I was like, you know, fair enough. But I was like, but obviously then it's going to be biased. Right. And so anyways, but, you know, again, at the end of the day for me, it's like, you know, I'm sort of the adversarial figure in the whole thing. And, and I sort of was like, okay, you know what? Like, like, again, they failed, like, I don't, I don't trust them as far as I can throw them. But at the end of the day, like, you know, I'm going to take what they're saying at face value that they want to change things. And, you know, they want to be the leaders to, you know, do everything right and all this kind of stuff. So I'm like, okay. So then they were like, you know, they wanted me to, to put a quote in the statement sort of saying that we met and all this sort of stuff. And, and to be honest, by like May last year, it was like three months into all of this, like, I mean, I, I was fried out too, right? Like in terms of, hmm. and, and I run a business and my busy months are the summer. And so I had literally put my whole life aside for three months and was just fully doing this last year. So I had sort of was hitting my kind of end point of like, where else, like I don't really have anywhere else to, there's nowhere else to go, right? Like the fans have sort of done their their part and in, in, in all of that. So anyways, they're doing this investigation. So I ended up saying, um, I agreed to give a quote and obviously again, I know how this works. So now all of a sudden like, Oh, you know, Kira's on board with the white cap. So all is well anyways. And then they hired this group and, and, and the other sort of side part that I didn't touch on at all, but it's relevant was that I ended up again in my like Aaron Brockovich ways last year, <laughs> tracking down the mom. So there was, they had a, there was a court case in 2017 with one of the boys players, the residency players. So two players assaulted another boys player in the locker room. And that was another other thing that sort of in that time period, um, she ended up going on the news disguised like her voice in her face saying that the white caps would try to cover it up and convince, try to convince them not to go to the police and all this type of stuff. And they ended up, the mom did go to the police and the boys ended up getting arrested within like, like the day or something. So I, so that to me again was affirmation that these guys cover stuff up. Right. So, uh, mm -hmm. so anyways, moving then to that, the, into 2019, when they, you know, we're going to do this investigation. I was like, again, very sort of skeptical, but you know, 
anyways, the investigation, you know, I'm in Thailand last year for Christmas. And then I get a, I get a message from one of the reporters I'd become friendly with. And, you know, they were like, did you know that the white caps reports dropping tomorrow? And I was like, you know, no, I had no idea of course. And that to me again, was just like prime red flag. Like these guys are not in it. Like as like your, you know, your teammate in this, like making this better. Like they're, they're really trying to make you, they're trying to catch you off guard and make you look bad. And they're dropping the report like days before Christmas, which like, again, the like PR handbook is like, you know, it's just, whatever, like they're so obvious with the, hand, like the PR BS handbook that it's not even like they're yeah. making it up at all. Right. Like, so, so anyway, so basically that's where like, I, you know, at midnight read the report that dropped, had 20 minutes to read like a 50 page report before like the media slammed me with like wanting my like opinion on it. Right. And so anyway, so I was up the whole night in Thailand, like talking about this report that they'd literally had given me no time to read, obviously to try to like catch me out and look bad. Right. And then that was at the, at the TSN interview at the tail end of at 7am in Thailand of this guy basically, you know, saying, asking me some really technical question about the report and then saying, you know, like, obviously, you know, well, I just, you know, oh, so you, you haven't read it then. So like, you know, I just thought from your social media, like you cared so much that, you know, I would have thought you would have read it, you know? And I was like, uh, right. And I just, so I like, I mean, I fired back at him. I was just, you know, I, I said, I was like, you know, they didn't give me any time. They didn't give me any notice or any time to read it. Like they gave all the reporters a copy yesterday and made them sign an NDA that they weren't allowed to talk about it till today. But, you know, it's not like they weren't able to do that. So anyway, so at that point for me, it was kind of like, okay, like they're, they're a part of the, they're just still trying to like outsmart the system or they're that arrogant that they don't think they need to do anything. And, and there's, you know, so that to me, you know, moving into to this year and even like, sorry, I really tangented, but like, just to give you perspective <laughs> of like, of where my mentality is coming from in terms of what we're dealing with. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think there has to be a third party, like, you know, the arrogant, like, well, who else do you think is going to pay for it? Like, we need a third party organization. And honestly, like mm -hmm. I'm at the point where I'm like, it's not that hard to set up a hotline. You know, and like I said, I found out that the hotline is literally like a legal organization that are, you know, their like purpose is to protect the, you know, PSOs and they're the ones manning the hotline. Like, you know what I mean? And they make it, everything sound so hard and they, it's not that hard to set up a hotline, you know? And so I'm, I'm literally at a point where I'm like, I'm going to set it up. <laughs> like, and I've had people reach out to me that are like, you know, we're willing to help. Like we know this needs to happen. So that's the next step for me. Honestly, like I said, like I'm, you know, it's that like quote, like be the change, you know, like this is not, mm -hmm. no one else is going to do it. Like it needs to change. Kids are not going to be safe. Like I'm not willing to have as much as I'd like to think that people aren't going to they're going to think twice before covering stuff up, stuff up moving forward. Like policies don't do anything unless there's accountability and unless there's like transparency. And honestly, at the end of the day, like even with coastal FC, the club that he ended up going to, you know, like everyone plays dumb and says like, Oh, well, we didn't know, or we didn't know the full extent till we read Kira's blog. Well, you know what, what in future, all we're going to do is just basically someone calls in, they report what's going on. A letter goes out to the club. Like, you know, basically that says, you know, you've been notified that this is going on. It's on you to solve the problem, but you're not going to be able to say you didn't know that it was going on. And you know what I mean? If that's what it starts for the mm -hmm. tiniest bit of like transparency and accountability, well, like it's, I don't think that that's that hard to get off the ground. And and I'm just at the point where I'm like, I'm just fed up. Like it, it it's, and I'm just not willing to have everything that like, that, you know, even my own life, the way that 
it's been upended like this last bunch of years, like have it be for nothing. And I realized like what a privileged position I'm in that like I was heard. And, and, um, you know, and like I said, that we're at a point now that like, you know, even with the charges, like, you know, it, it's, it's very serious. The fact that it was covered up is very serious. He was allowed back on the field for 11 years and, and there just needs to be change. And, and I mean, I think, what I've learned is like, you know, it's just, you just got to do things yourself. Otherwise it's just, you know, you, you just have these people that I think are totally unethical, awful mm-hmm. people that don't give a flying, you know, F for lack of a better, like more eloquent way to say it, but they don't, you know, and their actions have proved it. Like, you know, like I said, like I, I try to go on board with the white caps and, and, you know, but at the end of the day, they've just, they've shown their colors and I'm really glad that I like gave it a chance. And, and, but it just goes back to the fact that like, yeah, I just, like I said, like, I, I just feel like I'm in a position that I can do something and I want to. And then, you know, and then the other piece of it also is that I just think like there needs to be more education around it. Like I, you know, I, I coach soccer down in the States and I had to go through like a whole safe sport, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whatever modules and stuff. And I'm not saying it's like perfect. Like, I don't think anything's perfect, but even in the modules and even for me this year, like, you know, I've learned that like neglect is a form of abuse, which is like, basically like you speak up and you get penalized. And like, that was like my entire soccer career. But I always thought that that was just like, okay, that's just a consequence of having a personality that like stands up for people, you know, like, but to actually, again, like to feel validated with like, no, that's actually a form of abuse. And like, you know, and I just think that there needs to be more, education around emotional abuse as well. Where like, you know, like I said, like I have friends that are like damaged emotionally and in therapy from like their experience at high level sports. And I think, you know, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt to think that, you know, just, you know, the way coaching is sort of, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been like, it's again, the patriarchy, right? Like it's everything is, you know, and I think that there's as much as like the, the trauma that like Bob has caused, like I still, Bob had to have been a very messed up person to act in the manner that he acted in. And I just think we need to have a lot more attention paid to like the impact coaches have. And, and we need to educate like, you know, kids, parents, coaches, even as to like what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And yeah, like I said, I just, I feel I've like literally had this whole 2020, like a lot, like a lot of therapy and a lot of like self-reflection and, and I feel like mentally like really good and strong. And I, I think like as someone that's gone through everything that I've been through, like, I just, I don't know. I just feel like it's my duty to do something about it. And like, you know, just to be privileged enough to have experienced it and have the, like, you know, not to be so broken at this point that I don't feel like I, I can, like, I, I feel I'm motivated now. And I kind of, it's almost like the best parts of myself got taken away from me with the, and like used against me. And it's almost like, it's almost kind of like come back around. And now it's like, motivated Kira again but in like a positive way and I and like I said like a huge part of my whole soccer career like the biggest thing that I always got was like taking negative situations and turning them into positives and like I just kind of want to try to continue that with what I do next and those are the sorts of things that I think need to happen wow those are some powerful words and and I'd I'd like to first off thank you for sharing all of that with us and and for sharing this whole episode with us because um it's been wonderful but i'd love to give you an opportunity um to talk about two of the organizations that you founded because you mentioned be the change and it seems like you you're you've taken that in um because you've created um you've founded these two organizations girls can soccer and top soccer Mm -hmm. sort of what was your aim in creating them what what is what are they 
Um, and and um, what do you try to offer young athletes that perhaps you and other players wish had existed while you were um, coming up? Yeah, so it's funny, like even again, reflecting back on sort of the things that I've done, you know, over the years throughout the situation, like I honestly think those organizations in some respects were sort of like therapy in a way, like, um, you know, I mean, I think a huge thing for me is like, I, you know, there's just not a lot of female coaches and, and I even, you know, Derek, obviously you're in Canada and stuff, but like, you know, people are always like, Oh, you know, there's no female coaches in Canada. And it's just like, yeah, you think after going through a situation like this, like mm-hmm. most Canadian female players would want to, you know, go back into the game and like, you know, and, and honestly, even for me with girls can like, that's the whole thing is getting, you know, high level, like women involved coaching girls and being role models and, and all that sort of, you know, that side of things. And, but I think for me, like I, I stepped away from it for the last few years, just because I just had this really painful, like as much as I loved soccer, like I just found it really triggering to be on the field. You know, I don't know, like I said, it was just, I don't think I really understood the full like trauma of what I'd been through and why I found it so triggering. But, um, but that's something that I definitely like, uh, you know, yeah. Like I, I really, I just do think that soccer and sport in general at its highest power is such a like positive, beautiful, you know, like inspiring Mm -hmm. thing. And and, like, I just, I want to get good people that, you know, and I think a lot of times people that have played at like a high level and, and know what, crappy environments are like I think they're motivated to give you know a good environment and and know that you know the the person matters a lot more than like accomplishing you know and and I don't think the two things are mutually exclusive to be honest I think like the I think the most the the best athletes are the ones that are like you know mentally and physically healthy you know and and for whatever reason like coaches that are you know not are abusive that get results get you know somehow that's become a narrative that you need to like be like a not be in a good environment. So anyways, but that's, that's for me with girls can, and then top soccer. Um, I'm, I really feel like the university pathway is like one again, that kind of breaks up the, the power, I guess you could say, like, at least in Canada that coaches, well, and in the States as well, like there's just, there's so many schools, there's so many experiences to have. And, and I think that like, in terms of like a next step from like youth soccer, like it kind of, again, empowers the athlete and, Um, and I just think also like the balance between school and sports is like a really great thing as well. So, um, yeah, so top soccer again, to me, it's just, I want to give girls can is like giving an environment and then top soccer is just, you know, giving pathways to the next level, um, to again, put the power in the athlete's hands. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Kara, thank you so, so much for, um, devoting all this time to answering our questions. We have taken up far too much of your time this evening for um, for this interview, but Derek and I, and I know that our listeners so appreciate you laying it all out for us. Um, as you said, I, I mean, I imagine that, that going through this every time, you know, it, it's emotional. I mean, I imagine that it's emotional and I imagine that, that it takes a lot of emotional and mental energy. So thank you so much for being willing to do this. Um, and we are just so glad to have been able to talk to you about this tonight. No, I really appreciate you guys having me on and I really love the stuff that you guys are doing. I think it's so important to, yeah, just dig the layers underneath all this stuff. So yeah, no, I'm honored to be on it. So thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod. 
check out our website at www.theendofsport.com. And if you're feeling particularly generous, please support the show through our Patreon, which can be found on our website. Until next time, friends. Thank <laughs> you.